Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 61. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. And Dragon SpaceX, unfortunately, um, we are not going to launch today. You are go for 5.100 launch scrub. 5.100, it was a good effort by the teams, and we understand. Grrr. After tremendous buildup and worldwide anticipation and a rocket party with my two little boys, our family, and red, white, and blue M&Ms and rocket ice pops, the historic NASA and SpaceX launch was scrubbed. It was a bummer for sure. Kind of like 2020 so far. In one big Elon Musk-designed rocket-shaped nutshell. Another national bummer in a year filled with bummers. But they'll try again on Saturday. And if they have to, again on Sunday. And if they have to, some other day in the future. Space exploration is about tenacity. And about resilience. And so is America. Despite the Apollo 1 disaster in 1967, despite the Challenger disaster in 1986, despite the Columbia disaster in 2003, NASA kept pushing forward. NASA kept innovating. NASA kept grinding. NASA kept striving for a better future. That's the spirit of NASA. That's the spirit that inspired me as a kid on a snowy day in January 1986 to remain riveted to the TV before, during, and after the Challenger exploded. It's the spirit that inspires my four-year-old now, 34 years later, to tell people almost daily that he wants to be an astronaut. The spirit of NASA is the spirit of America, the spirit of exploration, the spirit of toughness, the spirit of getting back up after you've been knocked down, the spirit of resilience. That's the spirit of space travel, the spirit of Bob Beckin and Doug Hurley, the two brave astronauts who sat on top of that small capsule with the entire world watching. We got the easy job. Nothing better than being prime crew on a new spaceship. We've got the easy job. Nothing better than being prime crew on a new spaceship, Hurley said. That's the spirit. Before he was an astronaut, Hurley was the first Marine pilot ever to fly the F-A-18 Super Hornet. Yeah, his mission of a lifetime was scrubbed. But like all good Marines, he knows whining ain't going to help. You got to brush yourself off and get ready for the next round. No matter how low things can seem, there's always a promise of a brighter future. That's the spirit of NASA. And that's the spirit America needs now more than ever. Because it's been a long spring of scrubbed events. Graduations, birthday parties, weddings, funerals. A spring of scrubbed futures. And a spring of scrubbed lives. 100,000 lives. 100,000 Americans have now been lost to the coronavirus. 100,000 scrubbed futures. 100,000 grandfathers and grandmothers. Fathers and mothers. Sons and daughters. 100,000 lost, more than any other country in the world, by a lot. More than the number of U.S. military combat dead in every conflict since the Korean War. 
And it's almost the same number of soldiers we lost in all of World War I. And COVID-19 is now the leading cause of death in the United States. Just four months after the first known case in America, and just a few days after Memorial Day, the U.S. has hit the grimmest milestone of our lifetime and one of the lowest points of our time. And after Memorial Day of packed parties in places like Lake of the Ozarks, we may be in for lower days to come. But we can get through it. We have a choice, even in the face of garbage like this. Uh, I'm thinking about going. Uh, that'll be next week to the rocket launch. I hope you're all going to join me. I'd like to put you on the rocket and get rid of you for a while. Okay. Most free-thinking Americans of all political backgrounds wish he would get in that rocket and go to the moon and never come back. But until that happens, we have a choice. Unravel as a nation or pull together and forge forward. We can pack it in and stop exploring the universe right now, or we can pick up the pieces and rebuild for the future. A future that will be hard and maybe far away, but a future that is out there. The 1967 Apollo 1 disaster killed all three crew members. Command pilot Gus Grissom, senior pilot Ed White, and pilot Roger Chaffee. But 53 years later, astronauts are riding up to a rocket in electric cars and talking about colonizing Mars. The spirit of astronauts is the spirit of hope, the spirit of tenacity, the spirit of hard work. It's the true spirit of America. And it's what we can use to motivate us forward out of this fire, out of this disaster, and forward to a better day. But it'll take science, not snake oil. It'll take teamwork, not division. It'll take creativity, not ignorance. It'll take love, not hate. And it'll take all of us. Because after months and years of mistakes and missteps and bad moves, we're in a tough spot. And this catastrophe of a president is trying to make it worse by the day. This summer is the defining summer in determining the future of our country. It's that big. It's the ultimate space race, the truest moonshot, the decisive moment. And not even the fall election alone can save us. But as the number of dead climbs, the number of opportunities fall. Before we can ever go to Mars and build the homes of the future in space, we've got to stop the fire burning our current house to the ground here on Earth. This summer, it's truly the final countdown. It's the final countdown for America, for real. Our economy is in ruin. Our people are dying, our politicians are feckless, our president is a maniac, our enemies are testing us, our cops are killing us. This is the summer that will define us. Will we continue our path onward and upward, or will we explode in a fiery blaze? I honestly don't know, and neither do you. And anyone who tells you they know for sure is wrong. It's up to all of us now to dig down deep to do our part, to give some things up, and to sacrifice for the greater good, to sacrifice for the future. It's time to channel our inner Sally Ride. Oh, 
Sally Ride was the first American woman in space. Sally Ride is still the youngest American astronaut to travel to space. And Sally Ride is the first known LGBT astronaut in history. We all need to channel our inner Sally Ride and have the courage to put in the work, grit our teeth, make the hard choices, and forge forward, just like Sally Ride. And just like so many courageous American leaders who forged the hard path. And like our guest in this episode, the intrepid Martha Raddatz. Martha Raddatz is Chief Global Affairs Correspondent for ABC News. She's the co-anchor of This Week with George Stephanopoulos and one of the most respected journalists in America. Martha's built a career focused on forging the hard path, covering war, the military, veterans affairs, and international relations. I've been honored to know Martha for over a decade and to contribute at times to her reporting, to offer my counsel on veterans issues, and to work alongside her to support veterans. She sits on the board of the directors for the Bob Woodruff Foundation, which focuses on the military vets and military families. And Martha is the only television reporter ever allowed to fly inside an F-18 fighter jet on combat missions over Afghanistan. She's a patriot, the kind that'll hold the line for America and help relaunch our future. Martha's also been in the crosshairs of political combat, moderating the vice presidential debate between Paul Ryan and Joe Biden in 2012, and a presidential debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in 2016. She's renowned for her toughness, professionalism, and dedication to the truth. And you've never heard her like this before. Fresh off a newsmaking sit-down interview with Veterans Affairs Secretary Robert Wilkie, Martha shares what it's like being a grandmother, how she keeps perspective in D.C., and she even shares her favorite drink. Angry Americans continues our groundbreaking focus on the frontline fighters of the war against COVID-19 with another important, inspiring, iconic guest that shaped America's past, is shaping our present, and will surely shape our future. It's a conversation that will leave you moved, enlightened, and empowered. This episode, we focus on another key front line of America's war against the virus. In this episode, we dig into how the virus has disrupted journalism and how the media covers the virus and all things. How do they broadcast from home? How do they interview people in power? How do they keep a feel for what's happening in communities nationwide? How do they cover the candidates? and one in particular who's still locked in his basement all the time. But first. All right, I'm cooler than you are. Why don't you fix your little problems and light this candle? He's right. Let's light this candle. He surely is. Light the candle. Yes. Yeah. Let's light this candle. But before we get to our conversation with Martha Raddatz, there are some issues that have me angry, have others angry, and should have everyone angry. And there are a lot of angry people in America right now. Angry about masks, angry about Trump, angry about being shut down, angry about being killed by police, angry about losing their jobs. And now, more than ever, that anger is understandable. There's much reason to be righteously outraged. And few are more outrage-inducing than the way the pandemic continues to slam the veterans community nationwide. One thousand one hundred ninety one veterans are now reported dead by the Department of Veterans Affairs from COVID-19 as of Thursday, May 28th. That includes a big jump, 50 more than the day before. 
and there appears to be another reporting lag, per usual. But if you can trust the data, which you can't, deaths are up 10% over the last week. Over 90 veterans have now died in one veterans nursing home in Holyoke, Massachusetts. In Paramus, New Jersey, 81 are dead. In Alexander City, Alabama, over two dozen are dead. In Manhattan, New York, the Bronx, New York, Stony Brook, New York, where 77 died. Richmond, Virginia, West Palm Beach, Florida, Rowan County, North Carolina, Scarborough, Maine, East Vincent Township, Pennsylvania, Floresville, Texas, Oxford, New York, Reserve, Louisiana, Bristol, Rhode Island, Boston, Massachusetts, Detroit, Indianapolis, Washington, D.C., Lebanon, Oregon, Floresville, Texas. World War II veterans especially are continuing to die. Many more than are reported by the VA or anywhere else. Dozens of states are still not even reporting veterans' deaths. And VA Secretary Wilkie doesn't seem worried. Coming off defending swastikas on the tombstones of former Nazi POWs last week, he thinks everything is cool regarding the agency's response to the pandemic. Everything is cool as ice, including testing hydrochloroquine on dying vets. Even though the World Health Organization has now officially warned against using it, countries are banning it. France is banning it. But even if it's not banned, it's clear it doesn't work and might cause death. And here's a guy who knows a thing or two about the virus, Dr. Anthony Fauci. I'm not so sure it should be banned, but clearly the the scientific data is, is really quite evident now about the lack of efficacy for it and even the possibility that there could be, not could be, but there's, you know, the likelihood that under certain circumstances might be rare, but you'd see it, adverse events, particularly with regard to cardiovascular and the arrhythmias that may be associated with it. I mean, there was suspicion of that for a while, but as data comes in, it becomes more clear. So I'm not so sure you'd want to ban it, but certainly the data are clear right now. Hydrochloroquine is the Dutch oven of coronavirus cures. And Trump, wants to drag every veteran in America under the covers with him. He's taking it himself, and he's cheerleading Wilkie to test it on more vets, even as the WHO halts trials over safety concerns. The executive group of the Solidarity Trial, representing 10 of the participating countries, met on Saturday and has, uh, has agreed to review a comprehensive analysis and critical appraisal of all evidence available globally. The executive group has implemented a temporary pause of the hydroxychloroquine arm within the solidarity trial while the data, the safety data, is reviewed by the Data Safety Monitoring Board. WHO will provide further updates as we know more. And we will continue to work night and day for solutions science, and solidarity. That's Director General of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tetros Anhanem Gabriasis. And his message on hydrochloroquine is the same one that the astronauts got in Cape Canaveral as the threat of a major storm came rolling in. When there's danger, you don't fly into it. When there are dark clouds on the horizon, you don't light the candle. You do something very different.
The data are clear. But who needs data? Trump doesn't believe in data or really in making sense at all anymore. I had a two-week regimen of uh, hydroxychloroquine, and I've taken it, I think, just about two weeks. I think it's another day. So, And I'm still here. I'm still here. And I tested very positively in, a, in another sense. So this morning, yeah, I tested positively toward negative, right? So, no, I tested uh, perfectly this morning. I don't know if nonsense talking is a side effect of taking hydrochloroquine or not, but it would help explain the latest mess of a statement from President Mayhem. Trump doesn't believe in data. If he were calling the shots, every American would be taking the stuff, and the SpaceX rocket would have launched into a storm of tornadoes in Florida this week. Who needs data, or weather reports, or facts? The day after our last podcast dropped with Bonnie Carroll focused on hydrochloroquine testing on vets, the medical journal The Lancet reported that patients getting hydroxychloroquine were dying at higher rates than other coronavirus patients. It was a huge chloroquine and hydrochloroquine study of 96,000 patients at 671 hospitals, and they found that the drug increased the risk of death by 33 to 45 percent, and it increased the risk of ventricular arrhythmia by two to five times. But Trump thinks that's fake news. He thinks he can wish and pray the medicine into working. And that thinking is echoed by all his blindly loyal soldiers in this administration. And nobody is more loyal to Trump than VA Secretary Robert Wilkie, who actually did an interview with a respected reporter for once who knows about vets in the military, the excellent Martha Raddatz, who joins us coming up soon. But Wilkie curiously fired back at Senator Chuck Schumer and tripled down on testing hydroxychloroquine on vets. I want to turn to uh, hydroxychloroquine. The most recent study of 96,000 hospitalized coronavirus patients on six continents found that those who received hydroxychloroquine had a significantly higher risk of death as compared with those who did not. You have been giving hydroxychloroquine to some some. veterans. How many and why is that? Well, first of all, we use hydroxychloroquine 42,000 times a day. Uh, Anyone who has- But not for that. No, but, but it's a drug we know a lot about. And we know how well it has worked in the past, and we but know. But you know re- how well it's worked but with we, malaria. But we know, but we know what the body's reaction is to it. Uh, what many of those studies that you uh, refer to don't look at, the underlying medical conditions in our VA, when we use this, we use them with veterans who are in many cases in the last hours of life. But we also use them under FDA regimen. And I would also note that Dr. Fauci himself is conducting trials with this. We're working with him. And one of the things you're saying, Secretary, is that you know how this drug, how people react to this drug. But those people were not people who had coronavirus. No. So you don't really know that. No, but we, we do know in many cases that the drug given over a sustained period of time can be a prophylactic. And what we were trying in the last hours of a patient's life was to try to make sure we'd done everything we could given the circumstances. I I know President Trump has questioned some of these studies, including the data involving veterans. He said, as as you are saying, essentially, that they were near death. He said they were old and already dying. What do you say to those families of those who've 
been using this who have died? Well, we any any veteran's death is a tragedy. But what we're doing is we're doing this in consultation with families. We're doing this in consultation with veterans. Doctors are doing it. Nurses are doing it. Clinicians are doing it. We are trying everything that we can. Have you discussed this with the president? Is he encouraging the use of hydroxychloroquine in VA hospitals? Well, the, the instruction from the president to do what we can, to do as much as we can to preserve life, and I think that we are, we are doing that. No, you're not doing that. You're testing a drug that the entire medical world has said is dangerous for people with COVID-19, and you're testing it on veterans. And if you weren't sure about how this guy Wilkie works, Listen to his response to Senator Schumer's recent calls for accountability. What would you say to Senator Schumer who says the veterans are being used as guinea pigs? Well, I, I, I find that offensive, and I'll say that as many times as I can. Uh, these are drugs and regimens being put forward by professionals, people who care about, care about the veterans. And I'll also ask Senator Schumer. Uh, I think it would be incumbent upon him to thank the thousands of VA employees in New York City and New York State, who opened our veterans' hospitals in Brooklyn and Manhattan to take in citizens of New York who were very sick, citizens of New York who were not veterans. Uh, that's something I think we should focus on as well. Sound familiar? Oh, yeah. Senator Chuck Schumer should be thankful. He should be thankful that the VA finally did their job and activated their fourth mission to receive overflow patients because President Mayhem allowed New York City to explode with cases to the point that the National Guard, the VA, and the active duty military had to be called in. But even then, they had to be shamed into being activated. It was only after weeks of me and others in the media screaming from the mountaintops that the VA could help, but wasn't being activated by Trump. That was back when he was doing press conferences with the CEO of CVS and the MyPillow guy. And since then, one in 44 people in New York City have tested positive for coronavirus. One in 165 people in New York City has been hospitalized for coronavirus. And one in 400 people in New York City have died from coronavirus. Yeah, but thanks, Robert Wilkie. Thank you so much. But before we move on, check this out. The other side of this is, has been striking to me in that I don't have an explanation for it. We serve over 9 million veterans. They're in our system. And yet, as of today, we've only had 11,400 infections, and of those, over 8,600 have fully recovered. So the original estimates that we were preparing our hospitals for, thank God, have not come to fruition. They have yet to come to fruition. And he says he doesn't have an explanation for why their numbers are so low. I do. I do. And here's the rub they don't want you to know about. They've only tested 172,000 veterans in a system that serves 9 million people. They haven't tested 1 50th of the patients that they serve. So only 172,000 veterans have been tested total. New York State tests that many in less than five days. But VA has only tested 172,000, and 13,000 are positive. And given that, it means roughly one in every 13 of the vets they've tested has it. So if they actually tested all 9 million veterans in the VA system, and roughly the same percentage tested positive, they wouldn't have 13,000 cases. They'd have 692,000 cases. That's equivalent to the entire population of Boston. 
So he may not have an explanation for why the numbers are so low, but I do. And he's thrilled that they're only reporting 13,000 cases. It's all good. Nothing to see here. And so he's pushing to reopen VA facilities, just like Trump is pushing to reopen states. Wilkie's a loyal soldier. He's like the Florida Governor Ron DeSantis of the cabinet. And this week, he'll be reopening 20 VA facilities nationwide. And 14 of those 20 sites reopening have at least one patient still actively receiving treatment for coronavirus. The always excellent Leo Shane at Military Times had a breakdown. And here's a full list of the sites that are going to open today, all of which have an active number of coronavirus cases. Boise, Idaho, Central Arkansas, Erie, Pennsylvania, Fargo, North Dakota, Fort Harrison, Montana, Huntington, West Virginia, Mountain Home, Tennessee, Kansas City, Missouri, Cleveland, Ohio, which has 220 cases, Puget Sound, Washington, Charleston, South Carolina, Salem, Virginia, San Antonio, Texas, Syracuse, New York, Toma, Wisconsin, Tucson, Arizona, Las Vegas, Nevada, West Palm Beach, Florida, White River Junction, Vermont, and Madison, Wisconsin. So cases are going up. Deaths are going up. Testing is pathetic. Hydrochloroquine kills people. VA staff continue to complain about inadequate support and staffing, but Trump wants things open. So the VA will salute and move out. Aye, aye, Captain! I can't hear you! Aye, aye, Captain! Wilkie doesn't believe in facts. He doesn't believe in science. He believes in Trump, and he believes in spin. He's loyal to Trump first and veterans second, if that. That's why after months of working hard and coming up just short, VA Secretary Robert Wilkie has finally broken through. After weeks of denying responsibility, weeks of explaining away shortages of PPE and promoting fuzzy numbers, he has finally emerged to an elite level of recognition. Following the lead of pioneering explorers like Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, South Dakota Governor Christy Nome, Acting Secretary of the Navy Thomas Modley, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, Vice President Mike Pence, mobs of morons taking guns to the Michigan Capitol to protest stay-at-home orders, and most recently, the epically incompetent New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, who worked hard to keep the title this week by showing up late to his own Memorial Day event. The event was scheduled for 11 a.m. Many vets left around 11.30 with no sign of de Blasio. He left everyone waiting at his own Memorial Day event, per usual. But following in the footsteps of these pioneering jerks, and especially after continuing to push hydroxychloroquine on dying veterans on Memorial Day, he has finally earned the title, and therefore, the song that goes with it. I drive really slow in the ultra-fast lane while people behind me are Congratulations, Robert Wilkie. You're also the first cabinet secretary to earn the title, but I'm sure you won't be the last. Folks, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. That's true of the situation facing our veterans, but it's not just veterans. In the past few months, we've explored the impact of the pandemic on sports, on teachers, on moms, on soldiers, on black people, and the impact continues to devastate those communities and more. This show has always been an examination of the great American experiment. 
And that experiment is being tested and tested and tested harder and more severely than a potential astronaut. And right now, America is not a go at this station. There are now 5.7 million confirmed infections worldwide and 1.7 million confirmed cases in the U.S. alone. Still more than anywhere else in the world, by a lot. And thanks to President Mayhem and a wide range of national and local leadership failures, America remains at the top of the worst scoreboard in the world. We have about a third of the world's cases and about a third of the world's deaths, 1.73 million cases. That's more than the entire population of Phoenix, Arizona. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, San Antonio, Texas. It's more than the population of every city in America except for four. More than the population of every American city except Houston, Chicago, L.A., and New York. And we're closing in on Houston. And that's more than half the countries on the planet. And Brazil and South America have now firmly established their position in second place. 715,000 cases and over 25,000 deaths. Peru, Chile, Mexico, they've all seen steep rises in new cases over the past week, too. And Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro is the Trump of South America who won't wear a mask and insists that COVID-19 is only a mild flu. He also loves hydroxychloroquine. And just like in the U.S., it's getting worse in Brazil. But here in the U.S., it's reopening season. From the Ozarks to the Gulf Coast to the beaches to the mountains, Memorial Day weekend looked like party weekend all across the U.S. You gotta fight for your right to party. People protested and whined, and politicians nationwide folded. People wanted to party. They wanted to drink in large numbers and close spaces, make bad decisions, and jeopardize others. And governors did not want to be party poopers. They're too concerned about looking bad or being reelected. And the states are wide open nationwide. Only one state is still shut down, and that's New Jersey. And only 11 have some regions still closed. Every other state is reopened or reopening. And it's party time in the USA. People were partying this Memorial Day nationwide. Me, I was fishing. We didn't catch any fish, really. But we also didn't catch the virus. And we didn't go near people or go to any raves. But that's not what went down in other places. There are 17 states where the number of coronavirus cases are trending up. And second peaks are happening in places like Arkansas, where one outbreak was attributed to a high school swim party. So it's in the water. It's in the air. It's in the food. It's coming out of the TVs and the radios, and it's more contagious than anything we've ever seen before. It's tearing through the South like an alien through a space station. It's prolific. It's everywhere. The stupid is roaring like a solid rocket booster. It's blooming. It's never been so widespread. And after this Memorial Day, It's shaping up to be the summer of the stupid in America. 
Virginia, Maryland, North Carolina, Mississippi, South Carolina, California, and Maryland. It's a combination of urban states and stupidly led states. Swim parties in Arkansas, Jeep weekends in Galveston, Texas. You heard about that last episode, right? And the new in thing, the new hot way to support the virus, pool parties. Yeah, it's awesome. That's the sound of the sickness. It's the sound of hundreds of people bobbing up and down in waist-deep water, drinking bad drinks, and dancing badly in what's really just a giant pee-pee pool. It's gross on a good day. In a pandemic, it's like the most perfect party possible for the coronavirus. The coronavirus loves pool parties. The coronavirus loves the Ozarks and the Gulf Coast and the beaches of Florida. The virus loves them even more than it loves meatpacking plants, Native American reservations, and nursing homes. And I don't know what the hell is going on in America, but even this guy realized it. Lake of the Ozarks, packed with partygoers this holiday weekend. Look, I understand these are young people. Experts keep saying over and over they're at a much lower risk. But if they do get this... And again, there's no mask wearing here that I see, not much at all. I see no social distancing. But if they get the virus and then are in contact with older and more vulnerable Americans, that could be a disaster for others. That's why in a short period of time, it's only temporary. You can't social distance. Please wear the mask. Do it for your mom, your dad, your grandma, your grandpa. My humble advice. You don't have to listen to me. I'm not a doctor. So even Hannity is issuing warnings as cases continue to climb in places like Alabama, where the beaches were packed with people like these folks that CNN spoke to. Just like the flu, right? Well, it's not just like the flu. It's I mean, far pe- more contagious. Well, I know, but people die from the flu also. They do die from so, the flu. So to me, that's, that's just the way I look at it. Do you have any concerns about being at the beach with so many people with not your children? At all. Not at all. How come you're not worried at all that someone could be sick and walk by and get you sick? Because it's there's enough wind and air that it's going to clear it all out of here. Yeah, but the wind and the air don't clear it away. Well, there's no proof of anything like that. There's wind and air everywhere in this world. Right. Yeah. No, I'm not worried about it at all. And then there is the issue of masks. We saw a grand total of zero being worn on the beach. Do you ever wear a mask? No. My wife and kids do. I don't. How come you don't? I just feel comfortable that I'm going to be okay. But the mask isn't to keep you okay, it's to keep your wife and kids okay. To protect them. I get it, I get it. Uh, The survival rate is so high, I think... You're not worried about them getting sick because they're going to live. We're all going to get sick for something eventually. Oh yeah, we're all going to get sick from something eventually. But you, sir, you are unique. You are special. You are already sick, very sick, with the stupid. But you are definitely not alone. Like this guy, many others are with you in following Trump's lead. I mean, if he's not wearing a mask, I'm not going to wear a mask. If he's not worried, I'm not worried. The president. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Alabama being Alabama, proudly, the virus thanks y'all for your support. I've lived in Alabama, and there are some great things about Alabama. There are also some awful things about Alabama. And given the general attitude of many folks in leadership in that state especially, I don't think it's a place I'll be visiting soon. And I'm pretty sure others are going to feel the same way. And whatever tourism they get is long gone. And so are the ICU beds in places like Montgomery. Here's Montgomery, Alabama Mayor Stephen Reed. Well, right now, if you're from Montgomery and you need an ICU bed, 
you're in trouble. You could be in trouble in a number of states in the next few months. They're opening fast. Some never closed. But even holdouts like California and New York are crumbling under the pressure to reopen. All the gains by governors like Newsom and Cuomo could be wiped away if they rush to reopen. Here in New York, I'm worried. I'm even more worried about other states, but many still don't appreciate the power and the pain of all this. I know lots of people who've had it now. And this week, we lost our first extended family member. It's been devastating for my wife especially. And it could be, sadly, just the start. Here in New York and nationwide. If you do go out, please wear a mask. If not for you, but for the old people or the vulnerable, do it for the vets. And do it for legendary astronauts like Buzz Aldrin. He's 90 years old. Wear a mask for Buzz Aldrin. You don't want to kill Buzz Aldrin. Don't be the asshole who gets a 90-year-old NASA legend sick because you really had to go tubing in Alabama with 90 of your closest friends. Just go for a hike. Get out in the woods. Stay away from pee-pee pools. And if you see me out there in the woods... Only one state in America is still staying at home right now and being extremely careful. The rest of us have leadership that's either intentionally or inadvertently trying to kill the rest of us. 49 states in America have leadership that's willing to roll the dice. For many, it was a Memorial Day weekend of fun. For too many, it was a too stupid Memorial Weekend of fun. And for too many, especially in hospitals in places like Montgomery, Alabama, or Sao Paulo, Brazil, or Mumbai, India, and especially in nursing homes around the world, it could be a very cruel summer ahead. Especially if you're black. In episode 59, we went deep with How to Be Black author Baratunde Thurston, and we dug into how the pandemic is disproportionately hurting black people. And again, yet again, so are cops. I cannot breathe. The red. I cannot breathe. You're just a grown, you're, oh. you're, tough, you're a tough guy. You're a tough guy, huh? I say you're a tough guy. He's not even resisting the rest, bro. His whole nose is ah. on fire with him. Ah. Bro, but why you just sitting there? He ain't doing nothing now. Put him in the car. How long I got to hold him down? Why don't you do drugs, kids? It ain't about drugs, bro. Y'all understand that. Y'all don't got to put time in Right. Uh, he is human, bro. Uh, he's his talking. nose is You can put him in the car. That's a we bum tried ass that shit. for 10 minutes. That's a bum ass shit, bro. That's a bum ass shit, bro. Y'all know that. You don't got to sit there with your knee on his neck, bro. He's talking. Bro, he ain't crying, bro. It's video that's beyond disturbing. George Floyd was suspected of passing a counterfeit $20 bill. And it led to a brutal abuse of power and the murder of the 46-year-old man in the streets of Minneapolis. Beyond disgusting. The officer should be suspended, arrested immediately, and tried for murder. That's not policing. It's murder. A total, unnecessary, and blatant abuse of power. And I say that as a former Army military police soldier. There must be justice for George Floyd. Thousands came out to protest in Minneapolis. And cops fired rubber bullets and tear gas, and chaos ensued. Hey! 
It's exploding in Minneapolis. Stores were burned, looting broke out, and the officer in the incident and three others were fired Tuesday. They were identified as Derek Chauvin, Thomas Lane, Toe Tao, and Jay Alexander Kung. Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry called for Chauvin to be criminally charged. Federal investigators have joined the investigation into Floyd's death, and the National Guard may be called in to restore order. Because the National Guard hasn't had enough shit to deal with in the last few years, right? It's bad. Very bad. Black men continue to die at the hands of white cops. And racist incidents continue. Like the one with the crazy racist lady in Central Park who called the cops on a bird watcher. And attacks on Asian Americans continue to rise. As the pandemic spreads across the U.S., so have attacks against Asian Americans. Trump continues to call it a Chinese virus. In this spring, the FBI warned that there could be a surge in hate crimes against Asian Americans. And now it's happening. In New York, all 15 coronavirus hate crimes investigated by the NYPD Hate Crimes Task Force have been directed at Asian victims. And nationwide, one advocacy group has collected more than 1,200 reports of racist attacks against Asian Americans since the start of the outbreak. And our president continues to fan racial tensions and does nothing to unite us. It's a reason to be understandably angry, but it's even more reason to be calm, to be focused, and to find positive ways to push back and make an impact. Because it's a storm within the storm and one that we can choose to fan or to calm. No matter what your race, we're all riders on the storm. Riders on the storm Riders on the storm But the countdown on the mission to determine who will be the next president of the United States continues. So Biden and Trump are duking it out from different perspectives, from different places, and with very different perspectives on masks. Biden emerged from the first time in public in weeks and wore a mask. Trump did not. Trump refuses to wear masks while he's out on the campaign trail or anywhere when he's on camera. And Joe Biden was out in public for the first time since March with a full Secret Service detail now because he's the presumptive nominee. And he was wearing a black mask at a Memorial Day ceremony. But soon afterward, when he wasn't wearing a mask, he stepped in it again. Listen, you got to come see us when you come to New York, VP Biden. Cause I a, will. It's a long way until November. We got more questions. You got more questions. But I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black. It don't have nothing to do with Trump. It has to do with the fact I want something for my community. I would love to see Take you. Take a look at my record, man. That's Charlemagne the God. He's a nationally syndicated co-host of The Breakfast Club. He's very influential, over 2 million followers on Twitter, and he's had some pretty tough interviews recently with Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, and Elizabeth Warren. And he was less than thrilled with Biden's performance. And Biden quickly tried to clean the mess up. I shouldn't have been such a wise guy. I shouldn't have been so cavalier. No one, no one should have to vote for any party based on their race, their religion, their background. And Trump, wasting no time, mocked Biden immediately, saying, Sleepy Joe cannot bring to us greatness. He's the reason I'm here. Trump wrote it on Twitter while re-upping an earlier tweet of a poll that showed him leading Biden in the battleground state of Pennsylvania. 
and Charlemagne urged Biden to choose a black woman as his running mate. And he reminded him of how critical black voters were for him in South Carolina turning his campaign around. Biden has repeatedly stressed that black women are being considered, with the leading candidates widely believed to be California Senator Kamala Harris, former Georgia lawmaker Stacey Abrams, and Florida Congresswoman Val Demings. And Charlemagne the God strongly warned Biden against selecting Senator Amy Klobuchar, a white Midwestern moderate who some believe is the frontrunner for the job right now. Charlemagne said, I think it would be suicide for Joe Biden's campaign. If he did that, especially at this moment, after the comments he made, he would be a fool not to put a black woman on as his running mate. I don't agree with that. I don't think it would be suicide for Joe Biden's campaign for him not to pick a black woman. It would definitely create tremendous tension within the Democratic Party and in certain parts of the African-American community. But I don't think it's going to be the end for Joe Biden. And I don't think it'll tip things in the favor for Trump. But we'll have to wait and see. Charlemagne did make some strong points when he went on with Joy Reid. Do you think there's a risk that not just Joe Biden, but the Democratic Party in general just takes for granted that, well, the black, you know, the black people are with us, so we don't really have to give them anything else. They're going to vote for us regardless. Look, they voted for Joe Biden in overwhelming numbers, six in 10 black voters, particularly in southern states. They all voted for Joe Biden. We don't need to offer anything more. Do you worry that that is the attitude that Democrats are taking toward the black community? I mean, I, I know that's the attitude, you know, I mean, that's why I don't even care about the, the words and the lip service and the apology is cool. But the best apology is actually a black agenda. You know, they got to make some real policy commitments to black people. We got to stop acting like the fact that blacks are overrepresented in America when it comes to welfare, poverty, unemployment, homelessness, drug addiction, crime, coronavirus. Like that's no accident. Like the whole function of systemic racism is to marginalize black people. And as the great Dr. Claude Anderson says in the book Powernomics, white society has an out of sight, out of mind attitude about racism. And they don't like to have any discussions of substance about systemic racism. So when you have black people who have the nerve, the audacity, the unmitigated gall to act like citizens and demand something of our vote, it's a problem. It's, just, it's like you got, you know, whites telling telling us to stay in our place and you got black people saying, oh, stop. Now is not the time. You're going to get Trump reelected. It has to come to a point where we stop putting the burden on black voters to show up for Democrats and start putting the burden on Democrats to show up for black voters. And that last line is powerful. And these tough questions aren't going away for Biden, especially in the new, younger, more progressive Democratic Party. But will black voters swing all the way to the other side and pick Trump? I'm doubtful. But I do think Charlemagne the God is a force to be reckoned with now, and he could have a serious impact on the political conversation now and in the future. In the meantime, Trump and Biden are both trying to protect themselves not just from each other, but from the virus. I continue to believe the biggest threat to both of their candidacies is not who they pick for vice president or even each other. It's the virus. So if I were them, I would stay locked in the basement all the way till November. Or maybe they can get uploaded to the space station and hide out up there. But the virus ain't going away, and neither is the race for president. And thankfully, the helpers aren't going away either. They continue to step up time and time again from different backgrounds and different geographies in different ways. The helpers continue to step forward to inspire and motivate around our country and around the world. As the world's riveted to the SpaceX and NASA launch in Florida, other Americans continue to contribute around the world. But there are a few helpers that have been more helpful, more impactful, more dynamic, more consistent than Chef Jose Andres. 
And recently, he was in Brooklyn reporting from Kings County Hospital, where his organization has been feeding people in Kings County Hospital, one of the hardest hits areas of Brooklyn. And here's a video from Chef Andres. I'm here at the Kings County Hospital Center. We've been here for weeks. Uh, is, uh, we are doing thousands of meals to the nurses and the doctors, and this only happens because we have the great support of Bloomberg uh, philanthropies. And actually, this is great. Uh, because allow us to be in more than 17, 18 hospitals. Plus, we are in hundreds more hospitals across America. Uh, here, very smart, we have this company, ProMobile uh, company, which they have all these food trucks that they move around America. They partner with us. Uh, uh, they are Cuban, they are Italian. They do a heck of a good job making sure that the food is warm, the food is hot, and I think the food is delicious. Hey, guys, show me the food. Open right, up. Guys, let's open that up. Look how delicious that is. Oh. <laughs> Don't tell me this is not good. So listen, uh, Italian and a Cuban uh, owning a company, boom. Immigrants get things done, I'm telling you. Proud of you guys. Thank you very much. Nice boom. In the process, we're putting America up to work. 16, 1700 restaurants, we're about to get to 2000. And right now we are looking what's happening in Michigan and we may have to send a team uh, Michigan. Even we are already in Detroit because we are feeding in Detroit. So we are gonna have to activate an emergency response within the emergency. This is World Central Kitchen and those are the times we're living. Bye guys. Shivandres founded World Central Kitchen in 2010. And whenever there's a need, he's there whether it's in Haiti or in Brooklyn or in the Navajo Nation, World Central Kitchen and Chef Jose Andres are there. And in the last 100 days alone, they've been responding and have served over 10 million meals. They've served people on the Colombian border with Venezuela. They've served people in the Navajo Nation. They've served people in Langley Park, Maryland, in Los Angeles with NBA star Paul Gasol. And they've served the Lumbee tribe in Pembroke, North Carolina. All across the country, the chef and all his allies and friends continue to motivate others and help others by simply putting food in people's bellies, but also by putting inspiration in their hearts. They're what the helpers are all about. They're what this country's all about. The helpers carry us forward. The helpers pick us back up when we hit rock bottom. The helpers help us understand what we're watching and what we're experiencing. Whether it's a rocket launch or a presidential election or a pandemic. And Martha Raditz is a true helper. They see me rolling, they hating, patrolling and trying to kiss me riding dirty, trying to kiss me dirty. Raised by a single mom in Utah, Martha Raditz has been a Pentagon reporter, she's traveled to countless war zones, and she's still the only television reporter that was allowed to fly in an F-15 combat jet on a mission over Afghanistan. She's been in the crosshairs of political combat, moderating the VP debate between Paul Ryan and Joe Biden back in 2012, and a massive presidential debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in 2016. Martha's renowned for her toughness, professionalism, and dedication to the truth. And you've never heard her like this before. Fresh off a newsmaking sit-down interview with Veterans Affairs Secretary Robert Wilkie, Martha's a grandmother, a trailblazer, a patriot, and a leader. 
Angry Americans continues our groundbreaking focus on the frontline fighters of the war against the COVID-19 virus with another inspiring guest who's shaping the future. Martha's covered war for three decades. She's trusted. She's tested. She's tough. She started covering war in Bosnia in the late 90s. She was a Pentagon correspondent for National Public Radio, and before that, she was chief correspondent at the ABC News affiliate in Boston, WCVB. She was White House correspondent during George W. Bush's administration, but before and after, she continued to make regular trips to war-torn Iraq, and she's been to Afghanistan more times than she can count. In 2011, she got exclusive details on the raid that killed Osama bin Laden. In the same year, she was one of the few reporters on the last major convoy out of Iraq. She'll share more about that. She also had an exclusive interview on the USS Kersage off the coast of Libya while Marines helped rescue two American pilots who had gone down. In 2012, she was on a destroyer that made its way through the Strait of Hormuz, and she reported exclusively from the George H.W. Bush covering airstrikes against ISIS in Syria and Iraq in 2014, and again in March 2016 from the USS Truman. Underscoring her trust in the military and her expertise on issues of war, she was granted exclusive access to the anti-ISIS command center at an undisclosed location in the Middle East and anchored this week from an airbase where drone warfare was conducted. She's reported all around the world in all the fun hotspots, Yemen, Iran, Pakistan, Israel, Jordan, India, Turkey, Libya, Oman, and all across Africa and Asia. She's received the Walter Cronkite Award for Excellence in Political Journalism with a special commendation for debate moderation, and with good reason. She's one of the best moderators you'll ever see, because she's prepared, she's calm, and she takes no shit. Martha's like a great astronaut, always coolest when the lights are the hottest and the pressure's the highest. Every time there was a debate, she always kept a focus on national security, foreign affairs, and the military. She was always a voice for us. In 2012, she got the First Amendment Award from the Radio, Television, Digital News Foundation for Excellence in Journalism and the prestigious Fred Friendly First Amendment Award. She's gotten four Emmys, including an Emmy for being on the team covering the inauguration of Barack Obama, the attacks of September 11th, and the killing of Osama bin Laden. She received the 2005 Daniel Pearl Award from the Chicago Journalists Association and the Overseas Press Club Award for her live coverage of the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. In 2007, the White House Correspondents Association awarded her the Merriman Smith Memorial Award for excellence in presidential news coverage under deadline pressure, which is where she thrives. She also received the George Catlin Marshall Medal for sustained commitment to the men and women of the armed forces in the U.S. Well-deserved. And in 2017, when I was CEO of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, she was awarded the Leadership and Journalism Award for her strong coverage and understanding of the complexity of issues that faced our troops and veterans. Martha is also the author of The Long Road Home, a story of war and family. It's a story about Iraq and was a bestseller. The Washington Post called it a masterpiece of literary nonfiction that rivals any war-related classic that preceded it. It later became a miniseries on National Geographic starring Michael Kelly and Kate Bosworth. It's been a long road home for many of us who've served since 9-11. And Martha's told our stories. She's been on that long road home with us. And she'll be with us, all of us, in the winding, bumpy, and always interesting roads ahead. They see me rolling, they hate it. So in this episode, we're breaking through the atmosphere 
We're heading to a place where we can view the world from the outside in. Astronauts inspire us to look at the stars. And just like an astronaut in the space station, Martha's been looking down on all of us, and all of it. She's inspired us to look ahead and to look back. And with the same unique sense of adventure and integrity and determination that defines the American astronauts and the best of the four eyes. It's a solid rocket booster of integrity. It's a massive payload of information. It's an innovative capsule of inspiration and a gritty rover of impact. Minus X minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Welcome to an exploration of journalism in the pandemic. Welcome to a conversation about true leadership and patriotism. Welcome to a summer like we've never seen before. Welcome to Angry Americans, episode 61. Let's light this candle. Ladies and gentlemen, angry Americans around the country and around the world, we have a very, very special, inspiring, important, and iconic guest that I have been really excited to talk to for a long period of time, somebody I've known and admired for a long period of time, and someone who is at the epicenter of so many things happening in our country and our world right now. The great and powerful Martha Raddatz is with us. (laughs) Great and powerful, that's like Oz, right? Absolutely. I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Well, you're in Washington, and that's kind of like Oz, right? I yeah, mean, it's kind of like Oz. Definitely is, yeah. It's a little Oz-like here. So the, Always the first, has been. The first question I've been asking everybody, Martha, is where are you, uh, how are you, and what's the pandemic been like so far for you and the people around you? I, I am in my office at, at ABC News downtown. Uh, I love my office, by the way. I just, right before the pandemic, I happened to redo the whole office to make it a little more like what I liked and and you know so it's a little it's a little kind of pink and you know places that are great I know we both have the American flag behind us I, I, I'm just going to tell you that I c- totally copied David Muir on that he has a beautiful <laughs> office in New York and he had his an American flag that I guess was over the Capitol um, oh. the first night he started anchoring world news and I thought hmm I, I got one of those American flags. It was in the uh, F-A- F-15 that I flew in the back of over a combat zone over Afghanistan. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. I told David I was copying him. Really? So that, that flag, um, which of course I'm very proud of in a million ways, um, was in the F-15 uh, Strike Eagle that I flew in the back of as a sandbag in the back um, during a combat mission in 2011. And you were, were you, were you the, one of the first, if not the first reporter to fly? I think I was the only reporter to, to ever do that on a combat mission in, in a fighter. Um, and they actually did, uh, strafed an area, not in my jet, but we were with the, with the other two aircraft that did it. Um, so we had an incredible sort of up close view um, of how they go about this and what they have to do before they do any sort of strike and, 
it, it w- I think it took us about six years to set up, and I'm not exaggerating. Yeah, I believe it. Um, I, I had to do some training. It was amazing. I'm totally off topic. Back to the bent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Back to the pandemic. Um, it has been, as it has been for everyone, just completely life changing. Um, I most often work from home, but if I'm on the air, I come in. Uh, my office is very isolated. We're way down staff here. I can't, I don't know. There's probably a handful of people in the building, but we wear masks. Um, if we're in a public area, the cameras obviously don't. I, I did the show last Sunday. I have a very small staff to do that. Everybody's working from home, just, just like everywhere. Um, my house uh, has become a WeWork franchise, as far as I can tell, because every member of my family has taken over a room. Um, my my adult son is now living there with his wife, just because it's a nicer place to live than their tiny apartment in D.C. Um, but th- that's been great. And then my older daughter and her husband take turns coming to work there because they have two little kids. I know you can relate to that and how hard it is to work. So they take turns. And the other day I had a call and I could not find any place to be private. (laughs) Like what is happening to my franchise here? That and and I have a gym working my house because we have a Peloton, which apparently someone's always on every second of the day. So that's, Uh that's my life. Wow. Are you, are you hooked on the Peloton? I am not. I'm the only one who is not hooked on the Peloton. I go on like three mile walks every day and have discovered the neighborhood I never knew I had, which is quite beautiful. And we're very lucky. And there are lots of trails behind us that are practically empty. So so that's been actually a lovely, a lovely thing for me to sort of discover my neighborhood and, and do these walks every day. And it's also just sort of head clearing the outside. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's unique when you're Martha Raddatz, because when you're taking a call, it might be from a world leader or a source, (laughs) right? It's not like, it is. It's not like you're just, yeah, sorry, sorry. I'm just getting a yeah. Starbucks. Yeah. It's not just your cable company. I mean, you've right, got forces right. around the world or, you know, fighter pilots that you know that might be, be patching in. But, um, well, it, it's obviously a stressful time for everybody. I want to get into journalism. I want to get into politics. I want to get into to your background. But when you are back from your walk and you're taking a break from the intensity of your work, Martha Raddatz, what is your adult beverage or, or drink of choice? I'm going to be so disappointing here. So disappointing. I've always my whole life wanted to say it's whiskey. Uh, it's white wine. You know, it's a little sense there. Uh, occasionally, I will make a lemon drop martini. Also, so disappointing, right? Oh, not at <laughs> the all. Best, uh, the badass version of a lemon drop martini. Uh, but that's that. I, I like wine. There's something so just any season it just kind of is a good transition home i like to cook so i will sometimes just you know in normal times come home have a glass of wine and start cooking that kind of transitions you out of the day i love that that's not boring at all i think that's wonderful i love sensei i mean i had this tradition when a show would drop where i would go to the same place in tribeca and i would have uh, a carbonara pasta and a glass of sensei and that was my way of like celebrating another week. And the Sancerre is a great choice. And the lemon yes. drop martini is just fantastic. I mean, when you've flown in a combat mission uh, as a journalist, you know, you can drink whatever you want, Martha. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know what? Actually, you said that. And when the, the last time, and probably is the last, no, actually it was the second to last time that I did a, a, 
a fighter. I, I went on an exercise along the Russian border and it was sort of an add-on to a trip and I hadn't done it for years, but they said, well, look, you know, you've gone through this flight training. You can go up on this. I, I, it was the most unbelievable. Had that been the first time I'd ever gone, I probably never would have gone again because it was 10 ships and they were doing just crazy stuff. I've never been so excited in my life when I heard the, the, the uh, pilots or whatever happens in the aircraft, uh, bingo fuel, meaning we're almost out of fuel. It's like, mm-hmm. yes, please go back. Because he was just, I, I, you know, I may have been passed out the whole time. I have no idea. But when we landed and the pilot came over to our hotel that night to just say hi and do a little FaceTime live with us, um, I definitely made him drink like a gin and tonic beforehand, or I drank a gin and tonic beforehand. That was the best gin and tonic I've ever had. And I was still like climbing the walls after. You've had, you've had access and, and, uh, and, and, and connection to so many unique parts of our country and especially the national security and veterans and military world. Um, but your personal story is, is also very inspiring. And how you got to where you are now in this very elite era of, of journalism. And, and I'm glad to see you've got a flag behind you because I think what you do is so patriotic. And I know you're a deeply patriotic person, which is important in this time where the press has become under attack and, 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 uh, and really, you know, the, the, the integrity of the very institution of the media in this country has come under such attack. So I'm excited to kind of pull that apart with you in this conversation, especially in, in these times. But when you were growing up, and I don't know where this was, if it was in Idaho or in Utah, but when you were growing up, Martha, before you got to fighter pilots, Martha Raditz, what was your first car? Oh, this is, um, so I grew up in, in Salt Lake City, Utah. I was born in Idaho, but <clears throat> grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. And um, by, I uh, was raised by a single mom. My dad died before my third birthday, so I don't really, I have zero memory of that. Um, I, uh, so I grew up in Salt Lake City, and I, I joked that my whole thing was growing up there among all these very kind, friendly uh, people was that there are sinners out there somewhere, and I'm going to find them. And I, <laughs> I indeed did. Uh, I moved to Boston. But before I moved to Boston, and when I got my first car, and I think it was because, and, and you know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up or anything like that, but I had saved for a, <laughs> a Fiat Spider convertible. It was about this big. It was this tiny little car that really couldn't go very fast. I was still in high school, and I made about 10 keys and let anybody who wanted to drive it, drive it for the day. I mean, it was really like the community car because... I had it, and I felt like I wanted to share it with everyone. I don't know how we all lived through that year, but we were happy we did. So I think you can kind of relate to that with that convertible, but it was nuts of my mother to let me have that car. Nuts. That's an but amazing. It's okay. What, what, do you know what year it was, Martha? And what color? You know, it probably was like a 1970. Wow. And what color was it? Orange. Orange. Crazy. Yes, I know. Wow. So you're, know, you're an orange Fiat Spider in the mountains of Salt Lake City. I mean, yeah, and and you know where we lived, where our high school was. It was the high school had just started this flexible scheduling thing, so you didn't have to go to school all day. So you would just get in and throw your skis in the back, and 40 minutes you were in Park City. So that's what I spent a lot of time doing in high school. 
This is these are already amazing answers, Martha. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, you said you were a little, you were a little concerned you might be boring. I, I told you there's no way you're going to be boring. Because okay, all right. You have such an amazing life. We also, before we went live, I asked you to make sure you, you turned off any devices that might make noise. Um, and, and part of the legend of Martha Raddatz was this moment when, correct me if I'm wrong, when you were in the press corps and your phone went off, right? Oh, and, yeah. And was it? I, I, I was saying, like back before, it was cool to have like children come in the shot. Or <laughs> um, I was in the press room with Tony Snow, who was just a lovely human being and a and a really terrific press secretary for for President Bush. And I, but in the front row, and um, my son had put on my phone, "Chameleonaires Riding Dirty" as my ringtone. The phone rang in the middle, so that goes off, and, and and Tony, of course, turned around to me and like, play that funky music, white girl, and we all laughed. Um, I was totally embarrassed. I mean, I was sort of genuinely embarrassed. First of all, I hadn't really heard the ringtone, I think, yet, because my teenage son had put it on, like, that day. It was his finest moment. He thinks it's the greatest thing ever. But a funnier thing happened when I did the 2012 debate. So that was that was probably the, it probably went off in like 2005 or six. And when I walked out on the stage, you do this sort of little audience warm up before you do the debate, before you moderate the debate, it was Biden and Paul Ryan. And, um, I was wanted to tell the audience they had to turn their cell phones off. And I said, look, you know, let me just tell you what happened to me. And you know what that to happen to you after the debate, somebody pointed out to me on Twitter that, that segment that I was talking, which was just on C-SPAN, Chameleon Air was watching it. And, and, and he tweeted it. And he's like, hey, he was watching, you know, was watching C-SPAN. And, you know, you said this thing about my music going off. Keep it gangsta, Martha. That was my favorite tweet ever. So amazing. amazing. Yeah, it was great. You never know who might be watching C-SPAN. Exactly. I might be that. watching C-SPAN. I yeah. That. Like I've I've been on a lot of networks over the last couple of decades, and I'm always impressed when I'm on C-SPAN how deep and far it goes. I know. Like people of all backgrounds be like, hey man, I saw you on C-SPAN. I'm like, you watch C-SPAN? And apparently. <laughs> Chameleon Air watches C-SPAN. A lot of people. Who knew? Who knew? Chameleon Air watches C-SPAN. Wow! And 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 riding dirty of, of all of all of all songs. Yeah. Um, but again, the legend of, of Martha Raddatz continue to grow. I want to talk. <laughs> I want to talk about the debates. But I've also been talking to since the pandemic started. Frontline leaders from different industries about uh, how the pandemic has changed everything. Right? We've talked to educators. We've talked to moms. We've talked to activists. Uh, and really kind of unpacking how the pandemic has changed everything, but also drilling down on how things might be underreported, right? And, and I think what, what I would, what wanted to start with you on, on, Martha, is how has journalism changed? Um, and specifically, you obviously covered the presidential elections, you, you moderated debates with both Biden and Trump. How has, it, how has it changed covering Trump and Biden? Well, I think, I mean, I don't do that day by day, but... but uh, you know, we have Cecilia Vega, Tom Yamas, and, and Eva Pilgrim and other people covering that. Obviously, we haven't covered it as much um, since the pandemic began. I know to cover Joe Biden, who one of our young embeds, Molly Nagel, is, you know, was on the road every second, tracking his every move, and now is in her house. 
tracking his every move mm. from his house. Uh, I, I, I think it's changed markedly. To me, what I cover and what I try to cover for the Sunday show when I'm hosting or if George has me do it when he's doing it is the voters and what it's like in the rest of the country. And that just breaks my heart that we haven't been able to get out there and see what's going on, not just, not just in politics, but you, you lose a real sense of, of what's actually happening. I mean, it just shows you, and I've always been just a hardcore advocate of that. You have to go see what you cover. You have to go see it. You have to feel it and smell it and, and know what people are really saying and why and be able to keep asking questions. And wait a minute, why do you believe that? Or, you know, but wait a minute, this, this is true and that's not true. Or, you know, you, you, you just have to be out there and see it. And it's been really difficult. Mm. We have, in the past month, gone to York, Pennsylvania, drove up there, you know, <laughs> six feet apart. Um, even in the car, um, with my fantastic um, photographer, Pat O'Gara, who's just a saint. We drive up there. We've been to Baltimore. Um, we went to medical center the other day. But in terms of politics, I, I, I'm still trying to get out there. And I know we'll do more of that because I think that's one of the lessons learned in 2016. You just have to talk to the voters. Mm. And we certainly did it to a degree then, but but we just have to keep doing that and get a sense of where the country is. Or, 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 or I mean, I think you're getting more of that right now. Reporters are being able to go out and, and talk to people in, in, you know, Lake of the Ozarks or in Florida or Texas or, or, or places that aren't here in, in my bubble or your bubble. You can go out and talk to them. And I, I, I just think we have to do more and more of that mm. in politics. And I, I also think it's important not just to cover it from a horse race angle. Yeah. To, I, I, you know, I think when people hear the term issues, they think, oh, wait, I don't, I don't want to hear about issues. Well, I say it's the things that matter mm. and, and why you vote for people and, and what matters to you. And, and that's what I am going to continue to try and find out in, in these coming months. Martha, what was it like when you, you, you host George's show pretty regularly? You're his backup pretty regularly. What was it like doing a Sunday show? I mean, behind the scenes for people who can't see how it operates, um, you know, the, the production, the booking, you know, even, you know, the difference between being able to hold someone accountable when you're sitting across from them versus a Zoom conversation. But, it, you know, in, in your experience, how has it been different in ways people might not see unless they're behind the scenes? I, I think, I think, it is much harder for everybody. It's just much harder. And, you know, those very early days when you're kind of creeping back into the office after we've not even been in here at all. And, you know, it's kind of, do you wear a mask? Do you not wear a mask? I mean, those are the days you didn't quite know that. We're all walking around with our Clorox wipes um, and very carefully. But, but even to coordinate with, you know, if I have a researcher, I have a producer, it's, you know, to reaching out on the phone and, and they've been amazing, just amazing. But it is, it is a lot more difficult and it's a lot, it, it is. I mean, when you're, when you're talking to someone, I mean, this is great and we know each other and it's, you know, we can read cues, but if they can't see each other and they can't see me, it's, it's, just harder. I, the thing I love about the Sunday show and about any interview is you're right there with them. And 
and you can sort of read cues or when do you jump in and when don't you jump in. So it's harder. I mean, we've definitely evolved and I, I think the show looks pretty polished now. Um, even though we're doing all these remotes, I mean, I'm in the studio uh, and, and never had to do it from home. Um, but, but George did. And I know, you know, th- that's not easy because you have a little bit of a lag and, and that's always hard. Like if I'm overseas, for instance, you know, there's that lag. So you kind of don't want to jump in because then you get into that situation where, uh, 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 uh. <laughs> so it's harder, but, but, I mean, honestly, the the staff has just done an amazing, amazing job. Yeah, I I remember, you know, before the pandemic accelerated, there was those weeks, and I guess it was March, where I would get a request to do an an interview. And, you know, I actually remember one that I did at at NBC, MSNBC, in the final stages where I said, do you want me to come in or not? And they said, well, it's up to you. Right. There was that point where it wasn't mandated that you could do it from home and you didn't have to come in yet. And I remember texting Willie Geist and others saying, hey, man, can you give me a sense of what it's like in, in, inside Rockefeller Center right now? And having the conversation with my wife saying, like, you know, I don't want this to be the time I go in and I get COVID after they right. shut it down. So I think the stress on everybody is really unique and palpable and then accelerate to the point where I did an interview with Chris Cuomo from my wife's closet, you know, in, in New York City where we're trying to figure it out. But you've been you always innovate. You're used to a combat environment, which probably prepares you well for this kind of a remote situation where it feels like Hollywood squares on steroids, right? But you're still doing important interviews. You've always had a foundation in national defense. You have great connections at the Pentagon. And you sat down with Secretary Wilkie. And, uh, you know, I think the hardest hitting interview he's experienced yet you really pressed him in ways that I think only you can be counted on to do. I've seen so many people do softball interviews with so many people on national security, defense, and veterans issues. But um, before we even get into the substance of that interview, what was it like to interview him? You did it. It looks like you did it in his office, right? He wasn't wearing a mask. You weren't wearing a mask. I don't think. What was we? We were. Yeah, we were separate though. And in fact, that's one of the things I don't think you ever saw the big two shot. But yeah. they were from the moment you walked in that building, people were wearing masks. Um, they were still, you know, they were still, I put my handbag and our, all our equipment went through the roller there to make sure we didn't have anything in it. Um, they were, they were wearing masks. Uh, he had a mask on until we sat down. Hmm. And so all, all his staff did as well. So we, Pat O'Garho, I told you my, my fabulous photographer and um, uh, a producer of mine, Matt, Matt Saylor, who is, former Marine, um, set up everything. I arrived, um, secretary sat down. We had 15 minutes, I think. Um, and you know, just went ahead with it, but we, we definitely kept our distance Mm. and just got right to it. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, I think it was probably the most important interview I've seen done with him because you came ready and thank you. And you pressed him on the questions that he hadn't been pressed on. Um, you know, you talked about hydrochloroquine, which is an issue that I've been very concerned about. We've covered on this show. You know, we talked about responsibility and how it extends beyond the office. Um, and then there was a point at the end where he, you know, triumphantly talks about how few cases they've had out of 9 million people. But the follow-up I wanted to ask, and I don't know if you got a chance to ask. Oh, is, listen, everybody goes home and goes, I should have asked. No, this. no, no. I just, I, I, want, I want to get your thoughts on this because I know you, I don't, I'm not one to, 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 uh, 
to to Monday morning quarterback because I, I get I'm Monday morning morning quarterback myself, Paul. Yeah. So it's okay. But the the one thing I want to know is you know he keeps talking about how few cases they've had, but he's a mirror of Trump in his talking points in many ways, right? And part of why they've had so few cases is because they've tested so few. They've only tested 150,000 or so people out of nine million people. So um, well, I guess what I'm, I'm, I'm positioning my, my, my viewpoint on this, but I want to ask you a, a deeper question, which is you cover the, the Defense Department and the VA. Can you put him and Esper in a historical perspective? Because for me, they feel more political than anybody I've ever seen. They seem to echo Trump more often than anybody I've seen. Anyway, down to the hydrochloroquine, maybe is the most glaring example, where now Fauci says hydrochloroquine's not safe, but Wilkie still pushes it because Trump is pushing it. Can you, can you frame up for folks um, your experience and where Esper and Wilkie sit relative to their predecessors like Mattis and Bob McDonald and people like that? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Not my job. Um, I, will, I, I, I will say this, Paul. It, it is, I, I think there's a lot to be written about how people are doing their jobs now in the future. I do. I think they are in difficult positions. I know Esper. Uh, I don't. I don't really know Wilkie. I know Esper, and I know his history. I think he is in a difficult position. I know he wants to do right for the Defense Department, and and beyond that, it's it's not really you. You have the luxury of being able to judge people and and not get your head beat in. <laughs> and I'm not saying that's an issue for me, what's an issue for me is I just keep reporting as objectively as I possibly can every single day. And that's how I see my job. I press them when I think they need to be pressed. Um, I prepare for these interviews, but I don't, uh, I don't do opinion journalists. No, I, I, appreciate, I expected you to say that, but, but, I, <laughs> but you thought you'd give me the opportunity not I still to? Wanted to, I still wanted to ask. So, Maybe, um, you know, a, a different kind of question. Um, you know, the, the attacks on the press are open, right? And, okay, that I'm not objective about. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and, and also similarly at the Department of Defense, until recently, the stonewalling. Like, you know, no press briefings for the Pentagon, Pentagon Press Corps, which you, you know, know very well. So there's been a distance from the press, you know, um, maybe, maybe a, a, um, a corralling of the press, even, you know, on who gets access to the White House and things like that. And then an open attack on your patriotism. We had, we've had other journalists on before, like James Laporta, who's a Marine. And I asked him, you know, how do you feel about the fact that the president's calling you, a Marine veteran, the enemy of the state? So can you talk about, in whatever terms you're able and comfortable, um, the importance of that? And, and, and just what you think of this time where you personally are attacked, Joe Scarborough right now is being attacked and smeared, and it's become a regular political tactic and, and, and in your environment that's not regular. Um, I, yeah, I, I can talk about that. And, and in the, to the very point I, I, I said before, Paul, which is I do not want to be an opinion journalist. I don't, I, 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 I try to say straightforward and straight ahead, but on that issue, when we're personally attacked or when we're, as a profession, attacked like that. I did write uh, an op-ed piece in the Washington Post after the president appeared before the VFW and, and kind of riled up the crowd and they were booing the press. And 
just like James Laporta, I reminded the readers of that op-ed that the press, me, James Laporta, <laughs> before he was the press, risked their lives covering the military, risked their lives with them. I, I never want to say I do even remotely what the military does, but I want to bring their story to this country. And there are veterans like, like James and Matt, producer for me now, who are former service members who have served this country in, in remarkable ways. And so, yes, it is maddening when you, when you are attacked like that. And I just don't want the military to forget what the press has done with them to tell their stories. And I mean, people like Dana Priest from the Washington Post who exposed the horrible things in, in Walter Reed and helped get those fixed. Those are the things that you have to remember. And I've always said the people in the military who, who I think respect me most and I respect most are those who understand that we, yes, we can expose problems in the military or something that went wrong. That's part of my job too. And, and those people who I know and respect know that's my job, know that's part of my profession. And I, I, I went into covering the military by respecting what those in the military do. That was my number one starting point. And to tell those stories, to speak truth to power there as well. And to relay that to the American people and so they would understand and appreciate what our military and just as importantly, their families do. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. I think I, 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 part of why I was excited to have you on this show is because I, I've known you I don't know, maybe almost two decades now since I got home from Iraq, I feel like, and I've seen your work behind the scenes with the Woodruff Foundation and in so many other ways. And, and I also frankly see the respect that you have in the building, the Pentagon, right? There's few people that have this kind of rare level of respect. You, maybe Barbara Starr is kind of in that category. There are a few others. She's great. Right, that really, that have been on the ground, that have been there. They're not just flying in and they're always there, right? They're there, you know, at, at section 60 when no one else is there in 100 degree heat. They're on, they're in a fighter plane when no one else is watching. Um, and you've been, you've been a constant. And I know that when the debates were happening and ABC was there, I, I would tweet this and I know others would say, boy, I, I hope Martha Raddatz gets a question. I hope she gets to moderate because we knew you understood uh, the gravity of these issues. And, and, and now we're at a time where uh, Afghanistan is almost literally forgotten. I've called it Forgotistan, but, but Trump has said now that he wants to get all the troops home before the election. Um, Afghanistan's been pretty much off the radar, I think, especially since the pandemic hit, but it's still absolutely vital. We just passed Memorial Day. What are your thoughts on, on Afghanistan right now and the more extended um, uh, you know, forever war. And how, how do we cover that, right? With, with this situation, how do you cover it? How do you approach it in, in this unique time? I, I think, you know, I always try to remind our viewers or my friends or anyone I can get to listen that we have troops around the world still. We have troops deployed around the world. And in Afghanistan, I, I can't, someone asked me the other day how many times I've been there and I really lost track. Hmm. Um, I saw something, General Campbell 
posted the other day, and and he, he's one of those people who carried cards of those he's lost, mm-hmm. and just like Merton Dempsey did. And I think General Campbell said in his time in Afghanistan and Iraq, he lost 250 troops. I mean, that's incredible. You have to remember that. And the families. And I, I, I was thinking of a young woman, Laura Walker. I think she was the first female West Point um, cadet who was killed in Afghanistan, who would probably be 40 years old today, you know, and was 24 when she was, when she was killed there. I think about it a lot. And I listened to the debates about, do we just get out? Do we just leave? Um, and I, I think there's a lot, I, I, I mean, there's a, do you just pull out and leave? I, 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 I don't know how you do that. I was also on the last convoy out of Iraq um, in 2011. And I remember thinking, really? I don't know whether this is going to be the last convoy out of Iraq. And, you know, it's very dramatic. And we're driving across the desert and I'm with some first cab guys. And, um, and there we were back when ISIS came back in. So I, I, what I try to do, and, and, you know, through the years of all these wars, it gets harder and harder to tell those stories. It does. There's just no question about it. And I tell the young reporters, or like, I can't get on the air and do it, you know, whatever. But then you have, to, you have to find a different way to tell that story. I, I'm, I'm happy, actually, that David Muir, as busy as he is and as much as he does every night, will fly on. I don't care if it's for 24 hours or 15 minutes. He'll go and devote broadcast to those places around the world. And I will, too. And I will, too. And I think... That's what it takes. We're not going to cover it every night. There's just no way. But you try to think of ways to remind people what's going on and the importance of that place and the lives lost and let the public debate whether we should pull out completely or whether we should stay at a small, with a smaller force or whether you have a force ready to go in. Um, all those questions are complicated. And I try to help people decide that. Hmm. I think you do a better job of it than, than, than anybody really, especially on, on the highest stage of all when you're doing the debates. So as Martha, as you look forward to what the debates could look like, you may end up moderating one again. Um, I mean, what, what as a citizen, um, but also as a leader for the, for the journalistic community, what do you want to see? You know, and, and, and to whatever extent you can, if you were going to design a debate in this environment with these two candidates, you know, how would you structure it to ensure maximum impact for the country and for the dialogue? The, the way I approach the other two debates, and, and they're, they're such a, so important, and you are really the voice of the people. You are the voice of you. You are the voice of, I mean, I think you may remember this, but for one of them, I'm quite, or both of them, I'm quite positive. I called you. I, yeah. called a, I call a lot of different people and say, what's important? How can I do this? What doesn't always work the way you want it to because it's a dynamic situation. Right. But I think the, the most important thing is to think about what people want to know. And I would go back to that thing saying the things that matter. And, and it, you know, you have buckets like issues. Are, is it immigration? Is it, it, is it the war in Afghanistan? Is it whatever it is, it's important. I think of that in terms of what matters. I don't think 
in terms of political terms. Mm-hmm. I am, I am not going to, you know, go in that as a horse race. I, I, I just think people have to concentrate on what matters. And, you know, who am I to say? That's why I reach out to so many people. That's why I listen to whoever wants to send me anything and say, we should talk about this. Again, it's not, you know, it's not always going to be what you want to hear, but you listen to a lot of different things. I know when Anderson and I did um, Secretary Clinton and Donald Trump, we had, it was a town hall too, so they had input. We had stuff online, that, but we wanted to bet that. We wanted to make sure those weren't people who were just had a political agenda and were asking that question. Because it, it, It's very hard. Um, you put your whole heart and soul into it um, and you go in and, you know, you know you're going to get, you know, sort of fired on by both sides. Um, it, it's, it's not an easy thing to go into but you just have to realize the responsibility you have when you do and that you are going there as objectively as possible mm. and that you work for the people. You really do. You work for the people in that moment. I think, I think it, it comes through. I think the tone that you brought and the strength that you brought um, to each time you were in that seat was notably different in my view, right? There's a, it helps being a mother too, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> But there's a there's a command like, okay yeah there's a command authority that comes from exactly. wherever, wherever it comes exactly. from but you're not taking any shit and and you're letting people <laughs> know that they are the candidates but you're in charge which is i think really really important because some folks you can tell get starstruck or get overwhelmed by the moment right for it's one of the biggest moments of your career right of anyone's career in that spot and and i think that that true north that you have that's probably been in part forged by those experiences overseas and in so many places was really a differentiator. And, and I hope that I would be fine with you moderating all the debates. But, um, it's, but the debates are frustrating. The process is frustrating. There's a lot of uh, anger and frustration. And this show is about exploring that and trying to turn it into something positive. Um, so Martha Raddatz, what makes you angry? Um, arrogance makes me angry. Not realizing that we're sort of on a shared space on earth, you know, not, not thinking you're better than someone else and, and being unkind to people. Mm-hmm. But, but arrogance is really just, I have no, no patience for arrogance. Just, just none. I, we all have gifts. We all, um, you know, I'm sure there's somebody you think smarter than you and better looking than you and better athlete. We all have that. But I think I go in every day and think I have what gifts I have and I want to share those and I want to admire the others who have different ones, who may be smarter than me, may be anything. But the whole arrogance just drives me crazy. I mean, I've been around it too much. I live in D.C., you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you- so in a way, that's, that's why I'm not intimidated. It, it, it's, it's not that I think I'm you know, I'm not, I'm not intimidated by you. I'm better than you. It's, it's, I'm not intimidated because I respect what it is, what it is you bring, but I also have something to bring. That makes sense. Yes. Maybe not. Yes. And you, you clearly always have a pre- plan and you're prepared. And I think the preparation. I try. I try. Yeah. I mean, I can tell from, from our conversations and how many times I know you reach out to folks in different communities to understand the issues, to unpack the numbers to see, you know, where, where the spots are that are, that are undercovered. I, I've seen you do that. 
So now you're at this point, Martha, where you're, you're really at one of the highest points in one of the toughest industries in the world, right? On the highest stakes possible, coming all the way from Idaho with, with a single mom um, to moderating presidential debates on, on the highest stage possible. When you look back on your life and your career and your success, are there lessons learned that you would share with others, especially folks who are maybe going through a tough time right now with this pandemic on how you got through those times? And you were often one of the only, if not the only woman in so many of these situations, especially in the national defense and Pentagon world. You've been through a crucible and, and, and you've come out in a really important place as a leader. Um, what, what are your lessons learned or advice for people who are going through that struggle now? I, I, I guess I'm going to go to my answer about knowing you have gifts. I, I still, I, I don't think of myself, honestly, as, as anything particularly special. I think I've worked hard. Mm. And when I think back of younger me, I don't think I really had any great goals. I just wanted to work and learn. And the people I admire most are those who get up every day and want to learn something and want to contribute. Mm -hmm. And right now, I think it's super hard to feel like you're contributing or you have purpose. I, I think that's one of the hardest things. I think it's one of the hardest things for veterans when they come back and want to find purpose. Your purpose in life can be to get to the end of the day mm -hmm. and not be angry. Well, you can be angry. You know what I mean. Not be angry at the situation you're in, in, in the pandemic, and to work together as a community. And whether you contribute by bringing joy to someone else, um, holding someone else's hand in a rough time or not, unless they're outside of your family, then you don't want to hold hands. Um, but but it's, it's, it's to fundamentally try every single day to be a better person, to be a good person, to know that we all go through tough times. Mm -hmm. I, I've always made a point of telling, particularly young women or young mothers, that whoever looks at me and says, oh my gosh, you go to war zones, you do this, you have, you know, you raise two kids, you have two grandchildren, is that don't ever for one day think I didn't have a million meltdowns. Mm -hmm. Because I have, and it's tough for everyone. I am extremely lucky because I have a, a, a wonderful family and a wonderful job and all of that. But I worked very hard for it. Mm -hmm. And I worked hard personally to make sure that I could get through tough, tough times. I was unemployed for about a year and a half. It was mm -hmm. unbelievably hard for me mm -hmm. because I you know, I was like a crazy type A personality and going crazy. But during that period, I found other ways to contribute and, and, and to not maybe do what I loved doing during that year and a half, but to, to write something else or to, to just keep moving. If you have a couple of bad days too, that's okay. Just write them off. And on the third day, <laughs> Try, try to get back to it. I mean, there are days if, if I mean, this is, this is scary stuff, Paul. You know, I, I would be lying if I didn't say there were some days in the past couple of months that were really just scary. You can't believe where you are. You can't believe where the country is. You can't believe that you could catch this horrible disease the next day or your, some of your friends or your family. But you, you just, so I'm like, okay, I'm just going to check out today. I'm not going to go on that walk. I'm just going to stand up get up the next day and, and, and just resolve to do 
to do better. Mm. Thank you for that, Martha. I think your, your, your example has been what's most powerful. And it's, it's with humility um, and with tenacity and anybody who's witnessed your work over the last couple of decades, especially, is seeing the grind. I mean, you work very hard and I, I can see that from afar and, and I can see it in the work. I mean, the long road home we didn't touch on yet, but I think was really an important manifestation of that. You told the stories of others. There was the book and then the series. Um, you know, I think that that was a really important moment for our community. And to, I can't imagine how much work that took while you had your other job, while you have your family, while you, I mean, that came out around the time you were moderating presidential debates, right? Was it like? Yes. Yeah. After, after. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you, you're juggling a tremendous amount, but, but really contributing in massive ways, but also with your, with your example and your positivity. So um, the question I also want to ask you, Martha, that I ask of, of all of our guests is when you're going through that, you seem to have life hacks, ways to work through it. But Martha Raddatz, what makes you happy? Um, I, I think what makes me happy is, is learning every day. <laughs> See, we, we're kind of closing this loop. Is, is, is contributing, is to help others understand what I think is important. I, I guess it's to do my job well. And, and I love that. I mean, outside of the, you know, my, my kids and my grandkids and, you know, my family, which I, I adore, which makes me tremendously happy. I, I think like Long Road Home and that series was the happiest thing I've ever done at work. Mm. The absolute happiest because it helped people. And to be on that set where they recreated Sutter City and to take these amazing Gold Star families and the soldiers who were there onto that set and have them have with me too very rough days walking through there and seeing them come through that and seeing what that meant to them and having that gold star mother and sister walk through a set that was recreating the night where her son died mm. and holding them and kissing them and loving them and saying, do you want to leave? Is this too hard? And having them say, no, I want to see what it was like for my son. I think he was very brave. I mean, how could you have a more meaningful experience than that? Mm. I will also tell you what makes me happy. The Probably the most profound thing that's happened to me in terms of Long Road Home is one of the doctors who was in the combat support hospital that night has worn a remembrance bracelet with all the names. Um, eight soldiers died that night. And a couple of years ago, um, he, I was speaking somewhere about the book and I hadn't, hadn't seen him. And he, he was in the audience. I didn't know who he was. I hadn't seen him in person. And he came up and introduced himself. And I was talking about the series and about the book and about the families. And his bracelet says, let them not die in vain. And he gave that to me mm -hmm. and said, because of what you did, 
they didn't. I mean, how could anything be more meaningful than that? I don't wear that bracelet. I have it in a box in my office at home mm. in a clear box so you can see it. I don't wear it because I don't want people to say, why do you wear that? Mm. And to say, oh, I wrote a book. I did the series. Mm -hmm. it's, it's so much, it's not about me. It's about the fact that you know, an Eric Brooklyn or an Aaron Fowler or Ben Hayhurst got such um, deep help from that series. And we all have an amazing bond still. The soldiers, the families, and the actors and actresses who were so respectful and close to the people who they played. Um, you know, Michael Kelly was just an amazing Gary Valesky. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Troy Denemy, who's still active duty, um, they, they were all good sports about it. I don't think, I think it, you know, like any <laughs> selfless server, um, we're just like, oh my gosh, there's a movie about me. This is <laughs> terrible. Um, but they became really close to people and, mm -hmm. and all of us. I mean, we have, I, I actually was on a call with somebody yesterday, a little Zoom call that while I was out on my walk. I mean, it's just a terrific, terrific bond. Mm. It's it's a really important piece of work, and I think your perspective on it and on all things America is is extremely valuable, especially in this moment. We need these voices of conscience. We had Bonnie Carroll on recently. And oh, that was such a great show. I saw that. Thank you. But you know Bonnie's work, and I think especially in these moments, we need these voices of conscience, and I think you're one of them, right? They come in different tones and different volumes, but they're there to kind of hold the line for the fabric of America. Um, this week is the, the, the launch of the rocket. Um, you've covered a lot of things over the years. Uh, you know, this is a big moment in my household because I got a four and a half year old. But for many Americans, it's a moment of, of pride and excitement. Um, do you have, can you share your thoughts on it? And oh, I'm so excited. In fact, I, I, I know we're getting ready to do that today in that coverage. I, right. I'm looking in my office, I'm like, oh, the TV in here isn't big enough. I got to go home to see this. I'm very excited about this. I've always loved um, space. I think one of my favorite books ever was The Right Stuff. Um, just so amazing. So I'm super excited about that. Super excited. It's so great to go to go back. And, and obviously, we hope everything goes perfectly well. Um, I know we're you know, all over the place here this morning. We're in Florida and stuff's happening here in the Bureau and, and we've got all our guys uh, in line to talk about that and all the, um, the human stories there too. Mm. Well, it's, 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 uh, it's, 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 it's a great, it fills my heart to know that you will be on the front lines of covering that, of covering the presidency, of covering Afghanistan. You know, you've got such integrity and, and such deep, commitment to our country at the most you know, basic level. And I'm very, very grateful for all your leadership. You've been a real role model for me from the outside. You've been a great mentor and inspiration to me and so many. Um, and, and at this point, I have to present you with the gifts. I wish I could do it in person. So <laughs> I'll rip through them quickly and we'll get them to the studio. But first off, we've got an Angry Americans shirt coming for you, made by veterans in the USA, which is- Love tough. it. We'll get that for you that you can rock on your next uh, trip to the VA or anywhere else. Um, Bravo Sierra is, is our sponsor, and they make antibacterial wipes and deodorant. Perfect. Lots of stuff that can go in your bag next time you deploy overseas. And they also 
give back to MWR and veterans and troops, which I know you'll appreciate. And then you said whiskey. So I pick a whiskey each time <laughs> for our guests. And I was looking and I was trying to figure out, um, you know, something that spoke to me. And this is Whipsaw Rye Whiskey. And it's actually made in California. But I feel like a Whipsaw is, is a very strong, sturdy, reliable thing that cuts through anything. And I think that's what your work has done. You cut through the bullshit. You cut through the politics. You cut through the spin. And so that will come to you, I don't know, in like nine months or whenever I can get it to you. <laughs> that would be great. And then the last thing is, is a gift and a question. But we've been doing this since the beginning. We have three colors of peeps. It, right? It was, we started around Easter. We bring this back for every guest that we ask. We love peeps. Oh, gr please tell us more. But if you had to pick a color, would you pick yellow, blue, or pink, and why? I would pick yellow, even though I love pink and my couch over here is pink. I would pick yellow because that just reminds me of childhood, and that's the color I had then, and the others seem sort of fakey, icky. Hmm. But you See, I it. cut right through the BS there, Paul. See, that's it. You're a peeps fan. <laughs> you got it. Thank you for the gifts. I love them. I'll send you a Long Road Home t-shirt. I, I love it. I love it. But thank you for so much time. Thank you for your leadership and for your patriotism and for your generosity of spirit and, and, and for all that you do for our country, especially in times like this. We are lucky to have Martha Raddatz out in front for America and for the world. So thank you so much for joining me on the show and for all that you do. Thank you, Paul. Stay angry. Yes, ma'am. And stay frosty. All right. Whether you're an astronaut, a Navy SEAL, a working mom, or just a dude sitting on your couch, everybody needs hygiene and safety essentials that are tested by the members of the U.S. military. And that's where Bravo Sierra comes in. If you listen to this show, you know all about Bravo Sierra. It's the innovative, dynamic, patriotic company that makes great products that are super innovative and incredibly affordable. Go to bravosierra.com and check out all their products. You can learn their story. But these are really cool items that will get you through the pandemic and beyond. Uh, I love the unscented deodorant. I love the hair and body solid cleanser. I love the antibacterial body wipes. Those are the coolest. It looks like some stuff that you would get in a NASA package. Uh, it's really convenient. It's very affordable. And it's field tested by members of the U.S. military. Go to bravosierra.com backslash angry Americans, or you can use the code angry at checkout and get 15% off. And if you go there right now, you can try the Bravo Sierra starter set for free. You only have to pay $6.95 for shipping for a limited time. You can get three of their best-selling products. I recommend you check out the cleanser bar. I think it's awesome. And the hair and body wash is also awesome. Everything they've got is awesome. But they are grooming essentials that are field-tested by the military and always give back to the military community. Perfect for Father's Day. If you haven't hooked up your dad yet or you are a dad and want to hook yourself up or you're just sitting alone and you want to get hooked up. Unfortunately, we cannot deliver to the space station yet, but we're working on it. And if anybody can make it happen, it'll be the guys at Bravo Sierra. But they're grooming essentials, field tested by members of the U.S. military and by yours truly, made in the USA and kicking ass, just like this show and just like all of you. Check out bravosierra.com. From the moon to the space station to Afghanistan to your hometown, Bravo Sierra is making waves and really good stuff. So check it out and show them some love and you will be glad you did. BravoSierra.com. 
There's plenty of reason out there to be angry. Even as the summer weather gets warmer, the prospect of hockey and maybe even baseball is on the horizon. But there's always a way to make an impact, a way to turn that anger, sadness, frustration, inspiration, and even agony into positive impact. It's time to be a helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Every show, I offer a way of converting your righteous, understandable anger into positive action. A positive action that shows that angry Americans can also be impactful Americans. An action that'll channel your energy, make you feel good, and make a difference. And like this show, our actions are always packed with the four eyes: Integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. She packed my bags last night, pre-flight. Zero hour, 9 a.m. Right now, we all need a little inspiration. And NASA is all about inspiration. And you can actually help. Are you interested in helping NASA solve tough problems? Well, check it out. There's a one-stop website where you can find opportunities to participate in challenges, prize competitions, and citizen science activities that actually develop solutions for problems related to NASA's mission. It's all on nasa.gov, and it's really cool. You can become a NASA solver. They actually have missions for you to participate or compete in, including Honey, I Shrunk the NASA Payload. Apparently, NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in Southern California is running a public prize competition to design miniaturized payloads for future moon missions. The Honey, I Shrunk the NASA Payload Challenge is seeking instrument designs that could help sustain human lunar presence, demonstrate and advance the use of resources found on the moon, and enable new science. Future exploration of the moon and beyond will require tools of all shapes and sizes, from sweeping orbiters to the tiniest of rovers. In addition to current planned scientific rovers, NASA could one day send even smaller rovers to help scout the moon's surface. And these tiny robots would provide mission flexibility and collect key information about the lunar surface. And the data collected by these rovers would be helpful for future lunar endeavors and NASA's Artemis program. And there's actually an award, $160,000 in prizes. And it's open until June 8th, 2020. So go to nasa.gov and check that out. It's a mission that you can actually compete for. And there's another mission, a NASA Nemo Net. NASA Nemo Net is a single-player iPad game where players can help NASA classify coral reefs by painting 3D and 2D images of coral. You can rate the classifications of other players and level up the food chain as you explore and classify coral reefs and other shallow marine environments and creatures from locations all over the world. NemoNet is supported by the NASA ESTO Advanced Information Systems Technology Program through a grant and NASA's Biodiversity and Ecological Forecasting Program. You can help map the Earth's oceans, you can get badges, and you can get a NASA ocean ranking. There's no deadline, there's no money involved, but the opportunity is open for users every day if you go to nasa.gov. And the last one's really cool. It's called Exploring Hell. I'm not talking about Washington, D.C. It's different. It's called Exploring Hell, Avoiding Obstacles on a Clockwork Rover. 
NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab is running a public challenge to develop an obstacle avoidance sensor for a future Venus rover. Venus is an extreme world with a surface temperature in excess of 840 degrees Fahrenheit and a surface pressure of 92 times that of the Earth. Venus can turn lead into a puddle and crush a nuclear-powered submarine with ease. Now, many missions have visited our sister planet, but only about a dozen have made contact with the surface before succumbing to the ridiculous heat and pressure after just more than an hour. Powered by wind, there'll be a rover that'll spend months, not minutes, exploring Venus's landscape. And the rover will collect valuable long-term longitudinal scientific data. And as the rover explores the planet, it has to be able to detect obstacles in its path, like rocks and crevices and steep terrain. The Exploring Hell Challenge is seeking public designs for a sensor that could be incorporated into the design concept. The winning sensor could be the primary mechanism by which the rover detects and navigates around obstacles. The first place award is $15,000. The second place is $10,000. The third place is $5,000. So that's a pretty productive way to spend your pandemic. You can motivate the whole family and get you through your pandemic. There's all kinds of other things on the website, too. You can learn how to draw Artemis. There's a carbon cycle game. There's a telescope deployment flipbook. And there's tons of stuff for students and kids. Crafts, science experiments, videos to watch as a family. Everybody from kindergarten all the way to 12th grade. NASA has a whole science at home module that has a formal lesson plan. It's really great stuff where you can interact with scientists directly on the site. It's all at nasa.gov. And, of course, you can track on the NASA and SpaceX flight coming up on the Demo 2 flight test. It could be on Saturday, it could be on Sunday, it could be postponed later. But go to NASA.gov to get all the latest on the SpaceX and NASA launch. And I highly recommend you watch it. I highly recommend you watch it with your family. And I highly recommend you watch it with a couple other folks who maybe are isolated. Tell them to check it out and you can share that experience together. It'll be motivating, it'll be inspiring, and it will unite us no matter what happens. And one other thing, always remember to fight for NASA. Whether it's a local candidate or Congress, let them know that funding NASA is a priority. NASA is critical to the future of the United States, the future of innovation, and especially to the children of our country. So make sure you have NASA's back in every opportunity you get. Be a helper. Help support NASA and yourself and help us get to Mars or just survive the pandemic. Go to nasa.gov and check it out. And I think it's gonna be a long, long time. Touchdown brings me around again to find. If you got a story to tell or a resource to share, find us on social media and use the hashtag AngryAmericansLetMeKnow. Don't just be angry, astronauts. Be active. Rocket Okay, massive thanks to some folks that helped make this mission happen. Lots of astronauts, crew, an entire team working together to get this thing lifted off the ground. But first off, want to thank Martha Raddatz. Follow her on Twitter. Get her book, The Long Road Home. Watch her on ABC. And watch her Nat Geo miniseries. It's really good pandemic watching, but Martha Raddatz is incredible. I'm so grateful to her for joining me on the show and for making the time. I hope we'll get to have a glass of white wine sometime soon. 
Big thanks to our crew chief, Mighty Mercy Rich, and the entire team at Righteous Media. Creative Chris Rosenthal, he is like our chief engineer. And Bill Schultz is the head of Mission Control, making all our sound engineering sing. My biggest thanks to Bill. And to Bravo Sierra, they're like our SpaceX. Uh, Now that Memorial Day is passed, get ready for Father's Day. Go to bravosierra.com and get 15% off if you mention Angry Americans. Really cool stuff that looks like it belongs on a spaceship check out bravosierra.com and big thanks to our patreon members our patreon supporters the vigilant the very vigilant and the most vigilant there are three levels but they're all three levels of awesome and i want a big thanks and welcome to john bauer he is our newest member of the patreon crew so thank you to john for joining us we appreciate your support man and look out for angry americans on patreon if you haven't seen it i've been sharing a look inside my garage slash studio i've been tipping people off on who our guests are if you're a patreon member you will find out who our guests are first you'll get other goodies including videos before we post them and we'll have a link to the description wherever you get this pod and at angry americans US. If you're new to Patreon, you can go to Patreon, just put in Angry Americans, and you can find us and get hooked into some really exclusive access, and you'll help us power this mission. You will help us power this rocket ship of information, integrity, inspiration, and impact by being a Patreon member and help us navigate this asteroid field that is the pandemic. Also, we've got a listener poll out there to help us improve this starship. So look for that in the description of this pod or on angryamericans.us. I want your feedback, so please sound off. And it's time to thank a listener. Every week, we thank a few awesome Angry American astronauts just for tuning in to this space station. I'll make you famous. We always want to hear from you. We have a hotline. You can use it, 833-33-ANGRY. You can give us a call, and I'll make you famous. You can also tweet, post on social, send us a note at angryamericans.us, and we will do our best to make you famous. But give us a ring, post us a tweet, send us a note, and we'll make you famous. Go ahead and do it. Seriously, do it. Do it. Do it. Thanks to a couple folks in particular. I want to thank my friend Jamie Reedy, who had me on his podcast that will be coming out soon. And he suggested a great name for the Camaro. We've got a Camaro in the garage. If you haven't seen the video, go to angryamericans.us. You can see the 69 Camaro SS Orange. That is the backdrop in my new pandemic studio, but it needs a name. We've taken suggestions, everything from Orange Crush to Chris Cuomo, but Jamie had an idea. He said after our last episode to call it Bonnie. He said the car is a survivor, she's timeless, and she's still rocking and rolling and high-powered, just like Bonnie Carroll, our guest in the last episode. Got a lot of great feedback on that one. But my thanks to Jamie Reedy. He graduated from Notre Dame back in the 90s and became an Army officer. He spent some time in pharmaceuticals, and then he wrote a book called Hard Sell, The Evolution of a Viagra Salesman, which was a self-deprecating look at the life of a drug rep, climaxing in his selling Viagra. And Fox 2000 produced a film, Love and Other Drugs, based on the book. His second book, Bachelor 101, Cooking Plus Cleaning Equals Closing, is a cookbook lifestyle guide for single guys that'll probably come in pretty handy right now in the pandemic. And he also wrote uh, his latest book, Need One, a lunatic's attempt to attend 365 games in 365 days. But I've known Jamie for many years. Check him out. Follow him on Twitter. Thanks for listening, my friend. And speaking of the Bonnie Carroll episode, somebody mentioned to me 
that it was episode 60. And just in a unique alignment of the moons and stars, episode 60 corresponds with section 60. Section 60 is the location in Arlington Cemetery where the post 9-11 veterans are buried. So it just worked out that way. Bonnie ended up being episode 60, which is a reference to section 60, which was a really cool coincidence. Um, But my thanks again to Bonnie Carroll for joining us. Thank you to all of you for checking out that episode. It's getting a lot of great feedback. If you haven't heard it, go back and check it out. My thanks to Bonnie Schallenberger, who continues to be an awesome supporter down in Fort Worth, Texas. She sent me a really cool note on Instagram uh, and a photo of her nephew that just got home from deployment. So I want to welcome him home. She sent a picture and said he's going to make major soon with his family all around him and his corgi, Spud. So big shout out to Spud and to her nephew and his awesome lady. They just got out of two weeks of quarantine and are excited to welcome him home. So welcome home, man. I don't have your name, but I know your dog's name is Spud. So big shout out to Spud, to Vani, and to the Major and the whole family. Want to send a big thanks also to Kathy Graphics. She's on Twitter and Instagram, Kathy Graphics One. She's up in Montreal, but Kathy is a really cool Never Trumper cartoonist. You can check out her website, kathygraphics.com. She has a website in French and in English, and she's been posting some cartoons of me uh, taking on Wilkie and fighting with Trump. The really cool stuff. I love her style, and she describes herself in her website. She says that my name. My name is Kathy. I come from Belgium and I live in Montreal. Uh, this has allowed me to mix different cultures and practice several languages. She speaks French, English, and Dutch. And she does believe that through her graphic creations, she can bring the worlds closer together. She mixes Belgian and Canadian culture, and she definitely covers American stuff. So she believes that through her graphic creations, she can bring those worlds closer together. And she has four styles of drawings. The first is comic strip characters in clear line with Winnie Fred family pugs, available in mini comics, humorous cards, and satirical characters. She does portraits of world sports personalities from football, soccer, tennis, uh, and also athletes from national teams. Uh, And she's done a lot of hockey players, uh, Canadian hockey players, Belgian hockey players. She also does Indian ink drawings and invitation cards for events, posters, and illustrations of the news. And then she does tributes to outstanding personalities or to victims of disaster. So check her out uh, on Twitter and Instagram or go to kathygraphics.com. She's a wonderfully creative person and a big supporter of this podcast. So I want to send a big shout out to Kathy. Also, lots of great guest suggestions have been coming in online. Keep those coming. PM9R33N suggested that I get on Anthony Scaramucci, which was an interesting suggestion. He said, it's time to get the mooch on angry Americans. You know what? Bring it on. I actually met Scaramucci once in the green room at CNN. He was a nice enough guy. I'm not a massive fan of his politics, but I would love to have him on the show. It'd probably make for some interesting shit. Also, big shout out to my friend Perry Jeffries down in central Texas. He's an old soldier trying new things, but his suggestion was Dr. Dina Grayson. He said he's still waiting to hear her on Angry Americans and says it would be exceptionally enlightening and a great format to deliver some substantial information. 
So I dig it. I dig it. Who else you want to hear? We got some cool guests coming up. I'm not going to spill the beans. You can guess the guest every Wednesday on our social media. A couple of you got this one right. I think one or two of you guessed Martha Raddatz. Uh, there were a lot of other guesses, but the folks who guessed it correctly will get a special Bravo Sierra gift pack. It's coming your way. So guess the guest, sound off, and let me know what you want to hear, who you want to hear, what you want us to focus on. But I like it, and I love it, man. Please keep the feedback coming. Use the hashtag AngryAmericans and sound off. I am thankful to all of you. And I am especially and always thankful to my family, to my wife and my two boys. Uh, I've been talking about how there's always beauty out there. If you look hard enough, even during the pandemic, even during the toughest times. And we continue to have a nest of Robin's eggs just outside the kitchen window. So every morning... We go outside and check on the eggs. They have not yet hatched. They should be hatching any day now. There are three of them, three beautiful little turquoise eggs. But we are going to watch those closely. We are also going to watch the rocket launch closely. We watched it closely when it got scrubbed. We will watch it again, and we watch all of the rocket launches going forward. It's a really cool thing to be able to finally share this experience with my boys. They're super excited. Uh, they're super interested, and it's an amazing thing to bring us together. So I highly recommend it if you got kids or if you don't. But my thanks to all of you. Please keep pushing through the storm. Please keep bringing the calm. Please keep bringing a positive attitude and the light, the contrast, the heat. And please tell your friends to check this podcast out. I really appreciate you spending some time with us every week and sharing this with your friends. The audience continues to grow. So share with a couple people after this. Help us spread this independent voice farther and wider. Our audience continues to grow, but you can help. There's no fee for listening. All I ask you to do is share with a couple friends and post a review if you can. But subscribe if you haven't already, and we will keep it hot and fresh waiting for you every Thursday evening. So after dinner, sit down, pour yourself a drink, hit play and go for a ride with us. Even if you're way up there in the space station, tune in, subscribe and share. And please keep the feedback coming. I see you. I hear you. I'm with you. You can go to angryamericans.us to see the video of my interview with Martha Raddatz and sign up for our newsletter. We'll continue to adapt, improvise and overcome throughout the pandemic and beyond. And we'll keep this movement growing week by week by week, rocket launch by rocket launch by rocket launch. And it's okay to be angry, especially now. And no, you're not alone, especially now. We're all a little angry, but that's because we're paying attention. And we're also paying attention to music. There's some new music that's coming out of the pandemic that's pretty good stuff. And I really dig this new one from Luke Combs. I miss my mom, I miss my dad, I miss the road, I miss my band. kinds of music but i definitely love country and i love hugs and shaking hands and i miss them just like that song says but there will be crowds one day and there will be shows one day and there will be light after the dark after we aren't six feet apart but until then let's all root for doug and bob and nasa and the whole spacex crew this weekend we'll all be rooting for you if the launch is this weekend or if it gets delayed again it's a moment we can all share even at a social distance i miss my mom i miss my dad
I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. And stay vigilant out there, America. Stay vigilant and stay frosty. Superb.